Mary and Martha. Really, this is, really this is a, a message to Martha's. <laughs> Mary's kind of the silent one who gets commended by Jesus, but Martha is really the one addressed. And religious people have a particular temptation to become like Martha. And we want to not just look at that. I was even thinking, I was like, okay, my goal tonight is not to beat up all the Marthas in the room. Um, but really to, to sort of open our eyes to see Jesus. Because the reason that Martha is Martha has everything to do with misunderstanding maybe what it means to serve Jesus and what Jesus really wants. Um, and what's most important even to Jesus and his own life. So... Um, you know, it's, it's vital to not just, you know, whenever you have a passage of Scripture, I mean, you can look at it in, in two ways. You can look at it as, is this basically about me and what I'm doing wrong and what I need to change and start doing right? Or is this passage basically about Jesus, which certainly connects to who I am and what I'm doing wrong and how I need to change? But is the, is the Bible really about us or about Jesus? And that has everything to do with whether or not you'll walk away from a meeting like this just feeling beat up. Um, because I suspect that we'll all be able to identify with Martha pretty well. Except me. I, I'm not a Martha, but the rest of you. No, I'm teasing. Um, I was thinking, you know, even as I was... Uh, my, my life is so stressful right now. And I can always feel stress in my stomach. I can always just feel my stomach just churning. And it's been doing that a lot. And a lot of that isn't really about things I've taken on. Sometimes we're stressed out because life just comes at us um, in a way that there's nothing you can really do about it. Um, But often our stress is because we're anxious about many things and things that maybe we shouldn't be anxious about. Um, So, you know, it's interesting that we've hit upon this passage in what has really been one of the most stressful couple days that I've had in quite a while. Let's look at at Luke chapter 10. We all need Luke chapter 10 tonight. Start at verse 38. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand what Jesus is talking about, why it matters. But even more, Lord, would you set us free to be able to embrace the one thing that is needful? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pretty, pretty simple message in a lot of ways. We're going to look at tonight, what do we learn about Mary? Who is Mary? And how do you know if, you, uh, sorry, who is Martha? What do we learn about Martha? And how do you know if you are her? How do you know if you are her? And if you are... What are you going to be able to do about it? What does Jesus do about it? Who is the real Jesus? That's our topic this semester. And that's what we want to look at. It's not just enough. It's not enough to just see who Martha is and say, oh, well, I'm kind of like her. 
oh, drat, I need to, I need to not be that way anymore. You know, one, one, of the, one of the funny things is when you're kind of a performance-driven person and you become convicted that your performance-driven nature is not honoring to God, and then you try to, try to fix that, and all you know to do is perform, and so then you become driven to not be driven, it doesn't really work very well. The Lord has to come to the rescue. And the way the Lord comes to the rescue, time and time again, and in this situation as well, is by revealing who he is and what he's came to be about. And so I, I pray that, that we'll be able not just to see who Martha is, see that in ourselves, maybe come to understand a little bit more about why we are the way we are, but even more importantly, that we'll understand more of who Jesus is that would really help us, would really help us. Like I said, religious people are particularly prone to the Martha syndrome, particularly evangelical Christian people who have lots of good teaching about all the things that Christians should do, And the other people that are particularly vulnerable to this are people who really feel like the world needs to be changed and have a lot of energy to do that. So when you think about evangelical Christian college students who are concerned about their world, well, you see why this is a pretty relevant passage. Not only that, but you live in a culture that has made made it easier and easier to fall into being more like Martha than like Mary. And I'll talk about that uh, a little bit as we get into this. But what, what do we learn? As we look at Mary, sorry, we look at Martha, what do we learn about her? And the first thing I want you to know is, she's somebody that Jesus loves. When he addresses her as Martha, Martha, in verse 41, that's a term of endearment and concern and care. In Hebrew and in you know, Aramaic that Jesus spoke, in languages that you know, connected to Hebrew, the, the way that you show intensity of things is to double them or even to triple them. Thus, holy, holy, holy. Thus, when David's son Absalom finally dies, he cries, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. The Hebrew doesn't have a way of saying very or of showing degrees. It repeats things when it wants to show intensity. And so there is this intensity and this concern and this care for Martha. It's unmistakable. Jesus loves her. He cares about her. Well, who is she? Well, she's a leader. Now, this is interesting. Um, she, it says that it's her house. It's not Mary's house. It's not her brother Lazarus's house. We're going to meet uh, these folks again later in John 11 in a passage that I'm sure that I will do because it's one of my favorites where Lazarus dies. And you'll meet Mary and Martha there again. But she's always the one who's taking charge of things. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's part of her gifting. It's part of her station in life providentially. We don't know why she's the one, why it's her house and why she's in charge. People can speculate about different things. We don't really know. But we do know that it's her house. And that's the situation. And she takes charge of it. That's not necessarily a bad thing. We don't want to read too much into that. But as, as, as probably most of you have found, the things that you're good at the gifts that the Lord has given you often quickly and easily become the things that we trust in too much. It's easy to make idols out of the good gifts that, the God, has, that God has given us. We tend, we tend to make idols out of good gifts. And the best gifts 
make the most powerful idols, like relationships and sex and food. and All, all these things that the Bible says are good things, we, 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 we twist them and we use them. And, and, and I, I would contend that that's what's happened here. It's good that she's a leader, but she takes on too much. Now notice this. She's serving Jesus. She's serving Jesus. Now that's an important point to make because for many, many years, Christians have taught that the point of this passage is to say secular work, housework, yard work, business, whatever, secular work is really not as important to Jesus as sitting at his feet and worshiping him. This is the passage that was used more than any other to to justify monasteries and people pulling themselves out of the world and looking down upon those who worked regular secular jobs. And I have to tell you, that's not just a problem with the medieval church. That's a problem that's alive and well in the evangelical church. Evangelical churches all the time, whether they say it explicitly or whether it's just in the air and you pick it up, the impression is given all the time. And I know many Christians who labor under this false idea that the most important thing you can do for God is to be a missionary. And if you're not quite spiritual enough to be a missionary, well, then you can be a pastor or you can go on staff for some Christian ministry. And if you can't really do that, well, at least you can work and you can make enough money to support missionaries. But all of it, all of it really misses the point that Martha is serving Jesus. And Jesus is not telling her it's bad. He says the problem is she's distracted by many things. He's not saying this work doesn't need to be done. It's bad. Let's get non-Christians to do it so that we can spend all our times having a Bible study. He doesn't say any of that. He he, He rather is trying to get at her heart attitude. What has provoked really this outburst that when you examine it is pretty ugly? You're serving Jesus, Martha, and yet, and yet, she thinks he doesn't care about her, and she's telling him what to do. All the while, she's serving him. You see, you can start out serving Jesus and quickly along the way kind of get turned upside down, and pretty soon, the more you serve Jesus, the more pissed off you're getting, and the more frustrated you're getting, and you know this, I know, because a lot of you have been raised in Christian churches that are filled with people like this. Probably this room is filled with people like this. All the time, we, we, we sort of launch into serving Jesus and then begin to wonder, does he really care? I see a lot of evidence to point to the conclusion that he doesn't really care. He doesn't know what I'm experiencing And he's letting everybody else have a wonderful time except for me. Maybe he doesn't know what's going on. Maybe I better tell him. Maybe I better tell him what to do. Make her help me, Jesus. Why is she so stressed out? Why is she so stressed out? Well, we don't know exactly. And and that's one of the things I think is so helpful about this passage. 
is this passage fits for a lot of people. You see the symptoms, the symptoms of being stressed out and having this kind of outburst from someone who loves Jesus and is serving him. There can be a lot of different reasons that cause this. Some people become workaholics for Jesus because they really, really aren't sure that he loves them. And they want to make sure that their bases are covered. In other words, they haven't really listened to what he said about how it is that we're accepted with him. And therefore, they're, they're constantly being driven by this sense that unless I do this work, God's not going to be pleased with me. Which is really a way of trying to control God and his opinion of you. And, and often, it, it doesn't get exposed, but see, she's not able to hold it in any longer. And it seems that she's very used to telling God what to do. Maybe because the reason that she's doing all this stuff is to control what Jesus thinks about her. It's possible, and that happens with a lot of people. It may be, it may be that she's misunderstood what's really important. Maybe her priorities are out of whack. And, and she's, she thinks that religious activity is what it's all about. Serving Jesus, keeping busy. Maybe because, maybe because it's a little frightening to sit at Jesus' feet. Who knows what he might say. Better to sort of be off on the sidelines. I can kind of find my little niche over here, and I can keep busy, and I can do things that I know how to do and that I feel good about. Every time I'm around Jesus, he says really disturbing things. I'd rather you know, sit over here. But yet there's part of her that longs to sit at Jesus' feet and, and, and wishes she could be like her sister. But why not? Why doesn't she sit at Jesus' feet? Jesus seems to imply that that opportunity is open to her. And, and I think even in his mild rebuke to her, there is also an invitation. She's chosen the better way. In other words, why don't you choose a different way? So it may be, there may be a little fear about this kind of, some people keep really busy because they're frankly afraid of intimacy with God. And religious activity is a way to keep him at bay, but still feel connected to him. Don't know. Don't know what it is with you. But I, I know that this religious activity and being just so stressed out by doing all these things and taking on all these things often masks Different issues. Different issues. But the final point about, you know, what do we learn about her? She feels taken advantage of. And it's not really getting her what she wants, which is closeness to Jesus. She seems to want what Mary has, but either is unwilling to give up kind of her thing that makes her feel important, or is is maybe afraid to embrace that. Maybe she feels like if nobody, if nobody is going to do this, I need to do it. And she's feeling really, you know, kind of like this martyr complex. Any of you guys recognize that? Um, but the irony, of course, is that the access that she wants or seems to want is freely given and freely offered to her. Perhaps she's staying at a distance to pay for it. Maybe she doesn't feel that she's worthy to sit at Jesus' feet. I don't know. 
but something's going on. Well, how do you know if you're like Martha? What are the signs? Uh, A couple of them here that I'll just draw out a little bit because I I think it's helpful as we think about our own lives. The first is Martha is in inner turmoil. If you're you're like a Martha more than a Mary, and, and we tend to be one of the others of these people by temperament. We tend, people tend to either be more comfortable doing things or thinking things. People tend to fall into one of those camps by temperament, okay? And if you're a Martha, one of the signs is that you're in inner turmoil. Your life is filled with non-negotiable goals. You've taken on more than you can handle. You see, I think the implication here is Martha is doing more than she needs to. Yes, there were things to do. And it was even expected in this culture that the woman would do them. That's one of the things that's so surprising about Jesus commending Mary. According to this culture, Mary is not doing what she should be doing. But Jesus says, no, my presence changes cultural expectations, or at least it should. And he begins to to sort of make that clear, even by commending this woman, Mary, for doing what wasn't really expected of her or even allowed, according to some of the rabbis. But Martha, her life is, is in inner turmoil, and it seems that she's distracted not just by serving. And the Greek brings this out a little bit better than the NIV. It says that Martha in the NIV, verse 40, was distracted by all the preparations. But the Greek literally says by much serving. And it seems to have the implication that she's taken on more than she needs to. She's involved in really trying to to do it up in a huge sort of way when that's really probably not necessary and has brought all this inner turmoil and stress into her life. And it's, it's actually begun to cloud her relationship with Jesus, at least from her perspective. She's begun to doubt whether he cares for her. She's begun to doubt um, whether he is concerned or is aware of what's going on in his world. After all, Mary's over here. Jesus, don't you know that? And finally, she thinks that she knows better how the world needs to run. And she's going to enlist Jesus or basically try to put him on a leash and get him to do her bidding. She, She seems to be involved in doing more than was needed, and in the busyness, she's lost sight of the important things, of what really matters. Do you know about this, the tyranny of the urgent? I remember coming across this little pamphlet that InterVarsity, they still put it out. It's a great little pamphlet called The Tyranny of the Urgent, about how urgent things that scream at us, do me, do me, I need to be done right now, often crowd out the important things in our life. And you just get caught up in this cycle where you just can't step back And examine, what am I doing and why? You know, in RUF training, one of the things we talk about a lot is it's not just enough to do all these religious things. What we want to be teaching students is to ask, why are you doing what you're doing? We want to ask that about ministry. You know, why are we doing small groups? Why do we have large group? Why do we worship? Why do we sit under the preaching of the word? Why do we do what we're doing? But you need to be learning to ask that question yourself about everything you're doing. Now, I know that for some of you that that, you know, will throw you into the, sort of the, the idol of anal, you know, <laughs> navel gazing. All right. But there's still an appropriate place to say, why are you doing what you're doing? We really should be seeking to have 
a place where we can step back and say, what's really driving me? What's really driving me? What's driving her? She's irritable, especially with spiritual people. Martha's often get upset with people who seem to only care about studying the Bible and don't want to do stuff. She's irritable, especially with spiritual people who, in her view, don't like to work. And she feels that no one cares about her, including Jesus. In your heart of hearts, if you were truly honest with God right now, do you suspect that Jesus doesn't really care about you and what you're going through? Martha feels that. She's mad at God. Now, she tries to mask it. She tries to justify it. She tries to portray it in a way like this is only reasonable in light of the unreasonable suffering that I'm having to endure. But the bottom line is she's mad at God. She's mad at God. Now, Christians often have a hard time admitting that. I tell you, when I was in seminary, uh, one of the most valuable classes I took was a class on hospital counseling, where basically we would go over to this hospital, Missouri Baptist, and we would visit patients that we didn't know for an hour or two, and then we'd come back together and process with the chaplain what we'd experienced. And it, it was unbelievable, It was mostly older people, raised in church, no one there to visit them, most of them really pissed off at God, almost every one of them, or at least everyone I talked to, utterly unable to admit that. So now they they were mad at God, and they were further burdened by feeling that you can't possibly be mad at God. A good Christian would never be mad at God. You know, and it just, it would break my heart. Like, where did they, where did they learn this? What, what did their churches teach them all their life? Did they ever read the Psalms? I remember sometimes um, we would look at Psalm 13 together. That's one. If you're struggling with wondering or not whether Christians ever get mad at God and whether it's okay to say that, look at Psalm 13. It's not very long. And I ask you to describe the emotion that David is feeling there and what he's venting to God. He's mad at God. Now, does he have a right to be mad at God? No. But the Bible doesn't say, well, if you're mad at God, the best way to handle it is to pretend that you're not mad at God. And eventually, it'll just get all better. (laughs) I didn't read that in my Bible anywhere. And it's good that Martha has this outburst because when this stuff, or you know, when you just sort of throw up all over somebody like she does to Jesus, okay, your stuff's out there. And now it's going to get dealt with. And Jesus is going to respond to her and say, Martha, Martha. Because ultimately he understands she doesn't believe that he cares for her. And the first thing he says is, I care for you. I care for you and I know what's best for you. Listen to me. She's mad at God. But she's mad at God basically because she's taken on things that God never told her she needed to take on. And it's not worked very well. 
and then she's pissed off at God about it. Do you recognize that? Do you ever do that? Do you ever, you know, do things where you say, I know God is in this, and I'm going to run forward with it, and then it, you know, it, it falls apart, and then you get really mad at God. And the question, instead of saying, well, maybe I need to be more humble about how clearly I know his will. Did God really say this? I don't know. Maybe, maybe he didn't. Maybe I sort of just ran off thinking I understand fully what the kingdom is all about. Maybe it would have been better to actually sit at Jesus' feet a little more before deciding on all the things that you think need to be done. Maybe Jesus would, would say, why are you doing what you're doing? And, 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 and get you to kind of pull back a little bit. Anyway, she's mad at God and probably doesn't even recognize it. She thinks she's doing it for God, but most likely she's doing it to justify herself. And it's not getting her what she wants. And sometimes, you know, we feel that God is being cruel to us when our idols let us down. When we don't get what we want. But it's, don't you see that's one of the most loving things God ever does to you? Is to, let your, is to let your idols fail you. I'm not saying it's pleasant. But it's good. And that's what happens here with her. She doesn't think that Jesus cares. Why does she think that Jesus doesn't care? Because she's basically imagined him to be, I don't know, maybe sovereign, but not caring. Or maybe she doesn't think he really knows. She doesn't say, Lord, you don't know. She assumes he knows. And of course, because Mary's sitting at his feet. But she assumes that he knows what she's doing. Martha assumes that, that Jesus knows what she's doing. But what she charges him with is not caring. And I think that that's a very honest honest response from her. And I wonder, what would you charge God with? What would you charge Jesus with? Where, what does he lack, in your opinion, that, that drives you to feel like, I need to take care of everything? You see, people that are driven to feel like they need to do everything feel that something is lacking in God. What is it? Now, this is a particularly relevant topic for us, because in our day, it's not just the sin in our hearts, which certainly provokes this kind of thing. There, it is definitely more comforting to feel like I'm going to do all these things so that I can have a tangible list of things to point to when I'm wondering what God thinks about me. It is more comfortable in a lot of ways to trust to your record and to all the things you do than it is to trust boldly upon Jesus alone. Casting all your hope on Jesus alone is is rather frightening. It's putting all your eggs in one basket. And I don't know if you're like me, but I don't like to do that with pretty much anything. I always want to have a backup plan. I always want to have, you you know, one foot in this and one foot in that. But, you know, faith in Christ doesn't work that way. Faith in Christ is a, is, um, what did Martin Luther call it? A, a naked, whole-souled reliance on Christ. You know, Martha doesn't have that, really. She, she kinda, she, she's torn between kind of covering her bases by the things that she's doing, and it's causing all kinds of distress 
in her life. But there are, you know, you live in a time and an age where that's drilled into your head. Now again, it's already in your heart. It's already in your heart that I would rather have tangible things that I can point to that I've done or have not done that makes me right in God's sight. But there are cultural pressures that make it even more tempting for you to trust in that. And this guy, David Brooks, I love him. He's a New York Times columnist. Um, he has a book, Bobos in Paradise. You maybe have heard, I haven't referred to it in a while, but I really love that book. And his follow-up to that is called Paradise Road. And he mentions a couple things that are worth thinking about. When you think about college students today, he has an amazing chapter in there about college students today. I won't tell you, um, well, you know, it, it, it's, worth, it's worth reading. Anyway, he says this, Students have been measured and evaluated their whole lives, and thus they're constantly feeling like life is an aptitude test which requires tangible results. It's really difficult to rest at Jesus' feet like Mary does here if your whole life you've been taught that life is a continual aptitude test. And he makes some points about how, you know, in the 50s, people got into the highest elite universities because of their family connections. Now you get in through your SATs and your grades and your resume. And you're learning from the very youngest age that life is a continual aptitude test. And you're only as good as the last test that you took. And it can all come crumbling down at any moment. That's, it's really hard to not want to cover your bases and be involved in everything. It's really hard to say, well, maybe I don't need this experience and that experience. Maybe I just need to chill out and relax a little more. Now, some of you, maybe you need to, you know, relax less. I, I don't know. But I suspect, and Belmont is becoming more and more like this. The students at Belmont are becoming more and more like the typical, driven, overachieving college students. And it's hard to pursue Mary's model in that kind of mindset. Um, he, he mentioned some other things here. But there's this, this sense that sort of, preach to us in all different ways in our culture, and you need to recognize this if you want to understand why you're driven the way you are, our culture is constantly telling us that your highest allegiance, your highest goal, your highest responsibility is to make the most of you. And that if you don't make the most of you, that somehow you're sinning against the cosmos. You need to be all you can be. You need to experience everything that you can experience. And, boy, you better not, you better not turn down any opportunity that might serve to enrich your life or make you more gifted or more valuable or more employable. Well, who's the real Jesus? He's not like the idol that Martha imagines. He's gentle. He cares for her. And he himself actually models. He doesn't just tell Martha that Mary has chosen the better way. He himself models time and time again that the kingdom does not go forward by mindless activity, even spiritual activity, even activity that really seeks to serve Jesus. You have to start with understanding who he is what he's come to do, you have to sit at his feet if you would seek to be his disciple. You have to sit at his feet. 
What does it mean to sit at his feet? It means to spend focused time sitting under the authority of God's word. And, and Mary, what's interesting here, the Greek says that she sits herself in front of him or by his feet. In other words, it's, it's this reflexive Greek verb that, that means that she takes the initiative and sits herself at his feet. Now, what's amazing about that is that's not a place that people said she should be. And of course, you know, one of the difficulties with sitting at Jesus' feet is there just seems like there's so much stuff that has to be done. But one of the other difficulties is it just seems so countercultural and it just seems very impractical. But Jesus, you see, Jesus, listen, here's, I guess, one of the points of what I want to say tonight. Jesus died so that we didn't have to work our butts off for him to get him to love us. Jesus died so that we could rest in his presence. Jesus is not like Donald Trump, you know, where his whole goal is to keep people stressed out and on their toes, you know, worried that any moment they're going to hear those fateful words, you're fired. That's not what Jesus is like. Is that the way you picture Jesus? I tell you, the way some Christians act, you really got to wonder. Do they, do they view Jesus as somebody who's constantly disappointed with them? And maybe, just maybe, they're about to cross this line where he's going to say, all right, that's it. Finally done with you. Oh, maybe, you know, you, you still believe that you'll be saved, but you don't believe he'll really be able to use you for his kingdom in any kind of significant way. Because you just haven't towed the line. That's not who Jesus is. Jesus died so that we could sit in his presence. Now, yes, there's an important point to be made about serving Jesus, about working for his kingdom, praying for his kingdom. As a matter of fact, what's interesting about this passage is this is not chronological. All the Bible commentators agree that this passage, the where Luke puts this episode, is not chronological. This comes, and, and you can see that even the way he says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way. Where to? He leaves that out. He came to a village. Where? He leaves that out. He's making it more vague because what really matters is the point of the story, not where Jesus was going from or going to, but we know from John 11 where Martha's house is. And we know that at this point in the story in Luke, this isn't where he is. Does that mean the Bible's full of errors? No. It means that Luke is arranging the material in this section thematically rather than chronologically. Why? What does this follow? Well, it comes right on the heels of the parable of the Good Samaritan. In other words, it's very important that Christians love the unlovable, that they not go out of their way to avoid loving and serving Jesus by caring for people. But be careful that you don't misunderstand and think that the kingdom of God is only about serving the poor and loving the unfortunate. And I'll tell you, see, here's here's the problem. The church today tends to fall either into following Jesus' example in the Good Samaritan or trying to follow Mary's example, and they don't know how to put the two together. 
There are all kinds of churches that think, and I've heard Christian leaders say, that what really matters, the only thing that matters about you being a Christian, the only way that we can tell if you're a Christian or not is do you serve the poor, do you love the poor? That's not true. Have you responded, have you received the message, the teaching of Jesus? Have you embraced Him? But there are other people that say, well, all that really matters is if you walk forward, made a decision for Jesus. It doesn't matter how you live after that. That's not true either. This passage has to go with the Good Samaritan. How does it, how does it go together? Well, one of the, I think one of the keys is understanding the Good Samaritan is not just a model. is not Jesus just telling us what to do. Jesus himself is the Good Samaritan who doesn't just pay for us to get better. He actually dies in our place. He doesn't just risk his life to save those who are lying, bleeding, and half dead at the side of the road. He gives his life for us. That changes the way you serve him, and it changes the way you sit at his feet. It sets you free from feeling like, I need to learn all the answers so that Jesus will love me more. And it sets you free from feeling like, I need to keep working and keep working, and there's always more that I need to do so that Jesus will love me more. In other words, Jesus died so that we could sit at his feet. Jesus died so that we could serve him and not be driven by having to serve ourselves and prove to ourselves and prove to him that we're worthy of his death. We're never going to be worthy of his death. It's a good thing that we didn't have to earn the blood of Jesus because we couldn't possibly do it. We can't do it by learning enough. We can't do it by doing enough. But Jesus did everything that was required. Now, Jesus is not a religious pluralist. He says that Mary has chosen the better way. And if you're more comfortable being a doer, you have to ask yourself, why? Why? And what do I need to remember about who Jesus is to be able to be more like Mary and less like Martha? Is activity a safer path than true intimacy? Is knowledge a safer path than true intimacy? That's more my issue, I think. Is activity a more tangible way for you to know where you stand with Jesus and more comfortable? What, what, is, what, is, what are the things that Jesus teaches here that Martha needs to hear? Let me just conclude with this. Because, I, you know, again, I said there's lots of reasons that Marthas are driven to act like Martha. And Jesus is teaching here, I think, that Martha's main problem is that she doesn't know how to sit at the feet of Jesus, even when it's offered to her. Well, if she was going to sit at the feet of Jesus, what is it that she needs to hear? And notice this, even though she's not sitting at the feet of Jesus, he still teaches her. That's good news, isn't it? Jesus doesn't say, well, unless you sit at my feet, unless you do the right thing, Unless you put the right change into the cosmic vending machine, you won't get what you want, or you won't get anything good. You've got to pay for it. He doesn't say that. He says, Martha, Martha. And he teaches her. What does he teach her that she needs to know, that we need to know? A couple things. Martha, Martha. Jesus says, Martha, I love you. I care about you. If you're Martha here tonight, Jesus says, I love you. I care about you. I know what you're going through. I know the mess you've gotten yourself into, and I'm not here to shame you. 
I'm here to set you free. He says, secondly, Mary has chosen the better way. Even though the religious people say it's closed to her, and I I put some stuff on your little outline, it's just unbelievable. The kind of stuff that the first century Jewish religious culture had said about women and their role and how this was a way that was not for them. Jesus says, no, Mary has chosen the better way. And it's a way that's opened for you too. Martha, come sit at my feet. Come sit at my feet. What are you afraid of? Why are you running? Third, he says to her and to us, you are distracted by so many things. Do you even know what they are? What's distracting you? Why are you so busy? What are the non-negotiables in your life that are not non-negotiables for Jesus and his kingdom? See, non-negotiables are the ones where you say, I'm going to die if this doesn't happen, or if I can't do this, or if I can't get this. And are they really Jesus' non-negotiables? Come on, really? If they're not Jesus' non-negotiables, they shouldn't be our non-negotiables. And one of the ways Jesus wants to bring freedom into your life is by standing against your non-negotiables that are idols that you say are more important than him and his love. You're saying, it's more important that I do this and I get this than that I sit and listen to Jesus tell me that he loves me. And Jesus says, no. There are important things that need to be done, but be careful that you have not elevated good things to the position of being non-negotiables, to the position of being more important than even Jesus himself. Fourth, he says this, Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Those who sit at my feet, Jesus says, and Martha, come sit at my feet. Those who sit at my feet will never have their place taken away from them. I will die to secure their place. See, ultimately, it's Jesus' work that will allow Martha, like you and like me, to sit and rest. There's no need to impress God or earn His smile. No need. Do you hear me? Listen. There is no need for you to impress God. No need for you to earn His smile. If you just don't feel comfortable sitting and resting in the finished work of Jesus... Why not? Why not? Jesus, Jesus wants to say to you, you're distracted by many things, and there's one thing that is needful. Elsewhere, he says, seek first the kingdom. All these things will be added to you. Jesus knows that we need all kinds of things. He says that in other places, particularly Matthew 6, another great passage where he gets at some of these issues. And, and there, it's so wonderful. He says, you know, pagans run after all these things. You know, if you're running around like a chicken with their head cut off, you're living like a pagan, Jesus says. But he goes on in that passage and says, your heavenly Father knows you need these things. 
We know, what you need to know is that your God is a heavenly Father who cares for you. It's the only thing that will set you free. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that we have a heavenly Father who smiles at us because you, because you embraced the wrath of the Father. We thank you that we have a heavenly Father who cares for us because you endured his hatred on the cross. And we thank you that because of that, we can be invited to sit at your feet and know that that place will never be taken from us. Lord, forgive us for taking that privilege so lightly, for thinking that we aren't like those other people who need to sit at your feet regularly, but we can just kind of coast on what we know or coast on what we've done or coast on our friends or our family or whatever. Lord, thank you that you come again to us tonight and you say, we need to sit at your feet. We don't have power. We don't have strength. We need to sit at your feet and hear what you're saying. Help us to do that. Help us, help us to know what it is that keeps us from that glorious privilege. Why don't we read our Bibles more? Why don't we pray more? What are we afraid of? What do we think is more important? Help us, Jesus. For our sake, for your kingdom's sake. Help us to help each other. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.